I don't know about you, but one of the things I've learned over my life is that the greatest threat to me and my well-being is me. Uh, The greatest danger to me (laughs) is me. And this is somebody who has four children, and I've pestered them relentlessly their entire life, and yet still, the greatest worry that I have at night is about what I will do with my life, not what they might do to me in revenge while I sleep. Um, This is somebody who lives on the west side and has to navigate Sims Corner at least twice a day. Um, The dangerous intersection, even still, as dangerous as navigating that intersection in Foggy City is, uh, the greatest threat to me is me. We've been working through the book of Acts together as a church, and we've been looking at just different ways in which God shapes this very beginning of the church and the way in which the Holy Spirit comes and fills the believers and they set out on this life together, but also life in mission together. And one of the interesting tensions that we are going to see today, and it's going to carry through to the end of the book of Acts, and it carries through to our life together here, is this duality of, on one hand, we are the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped for the work of God, called to be God's representatives here on earth. And we see some beautiful depictions of that. We see the disciples meeting together in homes, sharing all their wealth together, making sure no one has need, praying, healing, serving the poor. We see these wonderful descriptions of the church. And on the other hand, the church is still filled with sinful, broken people. And these two tensions continue to work their way out in through the book of Acts. People filled with the Holy Spirit who are also sinful and broken. God's representatives on earth carrying out His work, announcing the good news of His kingdom, who are also bringing with them their habits and their attitudes and their biases and their sinful behavior all together. And sometimes, as we're going to look today, it gets really messy and complicated. And sometimes the problem, the greatest threat to the church isn't external, it's not government, it's not other organizations, it's not new philosophies. The greatest threat to the church is actually us. It's within the church. It's me. And maybe on your worst day, it's you. And in Acts chapter 5 and 6, we see the challenge of the church to be the church when the church still on this side of eternity is struggling with its own sinful and broken ways of being. And so let me uh, read for us today. We're going to look at two uh, stories that kind of capture this tension for us um, in the book of Acts, starting at Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 36. It's on page 1697. If you're using the red Bible in front of you, you can look it up on your phone as well. Um, Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 36. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet." Some of you are thinking, I know where this story goes, and I can't believe we're looking at it on Thanksgiving Sunday. Then Peter and Ananias, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? 
What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men or to the church, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came in and they wrapped up his body and they carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her away and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. Well, as we make our way through the book of Acts, we see this tension that the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit are still working out their salvation with fear and trembling and trying to figure out what does it look like to live in this tension. In this passage today, we see two uh, contrasting stories. One, Barnabas, and, the, uh, and then contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas is looking around as the church and he sees that people are taking things that they have and they're selling them and they're seeing the funds used to meet the needs within that community and beyond. And he decides to do that same thing. And he sells a piece of land, and he gives the full amount to the apostles, placing it at their feet, which is his way of saying, no strings attached. Use this however you like. And as often happens in church world, people see how other people are doing things, and they talk about it. Did you see so-and-so? Oh, wow, they're like so gifted, and they're doing this thing, and they're so generous, and they do that. And there is this temptation to try to behave the same way, to copy the behavior. And we don't know how or why Ananias and Sapphira came up with their plan, but they decided we've got a piece of land too and we can sell it and we can give the proceeds to the church as well. And we don't know if maybe they decided at the beginning to give the whole allotment and then they got cold feet at the end and said, well, you know, we could really use this for our own stuff. Or if it was their plan from the get-go to deceive the church and to keep a portion of it for themselves. We don't know. But they sell their land. They tell the church that we are giving 100% of the proceeds. They bring the funds and lay them at the feet of the apostles. But they really have kept a portion for themselves. And because, the scripture says, they lied to the Holy Spirit, it cost them their life. God's judgment is unique, it's just, but it's, and it's decisive, and we're grateful that God does not deal, us all, all with, deal with us all in this same kind of manner. What is God trying to teach the church in this unique moment through this drastic measure? Now, I want it to be absolutely clear this morning, this story, did, or they, it did not cost them their life because they weren't generous enough. They were more than generous. Their problem, the problem with them is not how much money they gave. If they had sold this field and said, look, we got $20,000 for it, we're going to give 10 for you and we're going to keep 10, they'd still be alive. If they'd sold the field for $20,000 and given $2 to help meet the needs of the people in their community, they'd still be alive. The issue is not their level of generosity. They were very generous. 
Their sin was lying to the Holy Spirit and, to pre- and pretending to be fully devoted to the mission of the church when in reality they weren't. Now, the story involves money um, because money always has a way of telling the story of what's really going on in our hearts. It tells the real orientation of our hearts. Money is like the kid that can't keep a secret. It's going to tell everybody the secret. Money reveals what's most important to us. How we spend our money tells us what we really believe about where life is found and what we really believe about where we put our hope in. How we use our money always kind of gives us away. And on a weekend when we stop to give thanks, we remember that what matters most in life is God's goodness to us in Christ and not the things that we acquire through money. But money will always be the chief competitor for our hearts. In fact, today, I don't know if you'll do this, if you gather for a Thanksgiving meal, sometimes there's a tradition to have everybody go around the circle and share something that we're thankful for. Do you do this? Some of you do? No, nobody does this. Thank you, Corey. You're the man. Corey, at your house today, I want you to say when that time comes around, I want you to say, you know what I'm thankful for? That we have more money than our neighbors. I just think that's really something I'm thankful. Try that and see how well that goes over. And everybody will agree that's not a great thing to be thankful for. Judas betrays Jesus for money. Ananias and Sapphira are deceitful with their money. Money competes for the very loyalty of our hearts, and it can do great harm. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we know this. You know of people who've lost relationships with their siblings over money. You know people who have lost friendships over money. Business partners, marriages that have fallen apart because of money. And they pierced themselves in pursuit of it. Because deep down inside, they believed that having more of it would make them happy. And then they got it, but it cost them greatly. And I'm so thankful for Luke as he's writing together this account of the early church. He remembers this story and thinks, I'm keeping this in. I'm not going to take this out. It's important for you and I to remember here something so gospel-centric is that the temptation to pretend to be something that we're not, the temptation to pretend that we're more spiritual, more generous, more holy than we really are, because underneath that temptation is a belief that God will not love me unless I'm better. Underneath the temptation to pretend is the belief that God will not accept me as a broken, sinful person and love me just as I am and work with me to get more holy in my life. And as a church, pretending, putting on a show, putting on a mask and pretending that we're better than we really are is counterproductive and sends a message to other people, God really won't love you unless you are better which, of course, is counter to the entire gospel of grace. Let's move on. Acts chapter 6, 1 to 7. This is a great story, too. So relevant for our congregation right now, too, in some ways. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing... 
The Grecian Jews, or Jews that were living in Greece, among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, so the Jews kind of local to Israel, because of the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. Now verse 1 sets the context for us. Many people were becoming disciples. The church was growing. We'd read back in earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 4 that thousands were becoming part of this movement of a local church. New people, new faces, new names, new accents, new languages being spoken, new political backgrounds from people, new everything. And it was wonderful, but it was creating challenges. Imagine today if you're having Thanksgiving dinner and you invite six people to come for lunch. You've got the table all set and 40 show up. That's great. You're going to look and say, wow, these are 40 very lovely people. I'm really just overwhelmed that they would choose to come to my house for lunch today. And uh, that's great. You're going to be really excited about that. Except you've only got a turkey that feeds 10, and you've only got nine chairs in your house, and you only have one pie, which is going to be a really big problem when it comes to dessert. It's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. Now, to better understand this passage, imagine that of those people that show up to your house, these 40 people that are guests, uh, they didn't grow up here in St. John, they're from elsewhere. Other counties in New Brunswick, other provinces, other countries. And so as you kind of get your Thanksgiving meal started, you decide, I'm going to feed my family and friends, those closest to me first, I'm going to make sure they give a good hearty feed, and I'm going to load up their plates and give them a big piece of pie, and kind of as we get down the line, they'll just have to deal with it, and they won't get the same amount of food. This is what's going on in this situation in the book of Acts. Now, it was virtuous in the ancient world to want to be buried in the Holy Land, to be buried in Jerusalem. And so oftentimes what would happen is Jewish people who'd grown up in Greece and countries all outside of Israel, as they got older in life, they would move back to Jerusalem thinking that when I die, I'll get buried in the Holy Land. It's kind of like Florida, right? It's kind of where all the seniors ended up. And being that husbands often died before wives, there were many widows there in the country. And it was creating social problems, and those social problems spilled over into the church. But this was more than just logistics and not having enough turkey. This was also had a racial element to it as well. In that it was kind of like the locals will look after first, and the foreigners we will look after later. And it's fascinating to me that Luke keeps this account in the book of Acts. 
And it's fascinating to me is their response. In verses 2 to 4, we see, first of all, that they take this very seriously. This is not a small problem, and we need to deal with this in the right way. And they do two things. First of all, it's interesting that they say um, that the qualifications for the people who are going to look after the daily distribution of food need to be on par with those who are carrying out ministries of prayer and the Word, namely that they need to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Look at verse 2 for a second. It says, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of word waiting on tables. And then in verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. In the original language, the word waiting and the word ministry are the exact same word. They're the Hebrew or the Greek word diakona, which means servant. It's where we get our English word deacon from. Meaning that the people who carry out the, the food ministry must also have a servant heart in the same way that the people who are carrying out the preaching and the ministry of prayer. They must be spirit-filled servants of God. Secondly, notice that they pick Greek people to carry out this ministry. The names that I listed in that very tricky list of names of, of people who be, took after this ministry, those are Greek names. Those are people that were not born in Jerusalem. They were not born in Israel. These were people from outside of the country who are now part of the church, and they take on leadership. And we see this theme that the church is expanding, not just in attendance, but also in terms of those who now are giving leadership that the church must carry out and continue to grow. Not just the original core who've always been here doing the things in the same way, but bringing in the new people and seeing them empowered for leadership in the church. Now, when I read through this passage, I was thinking in so many ways it applies to our certain situation here at Rivercross, especially in this last year, as we have seen many new people, many new disciples become part of our church fellowship. And it's great, and it's, but it's also created some challenges. It's created logistic challenges. It's why we're trying to get some more money for the bus, because we are busing more people than ever. It's a great problem to have. It's why the nursery, people said to us at the end of the summer, we have too many babies to have in the nursery for one combined service. It was not fun. That's a good problem to have, but it's a problem. It's why we don't have rooms for people who want to meet. We've got a Sunday school class that's currently meeting in the kitchen at 9.30 while they're grinding coffee. That's not ideal. These are good problems to have, but they are problems. And one of the interesting things in the book of Acts, and maybe you felt it as we read through it, is that certain people were feeling left out as the church grew. They were feeling left out. Seniors can feel left out who no longer worship in person and only worship online and wonder, does anybody know I even exist? People who are new to this church who are trying to figure out how do I connect, where do I get involved, how can I do things, they're feeling left out. People who grow up here their whole life and look around and say, I don't really know most of the people in my congregation anymore, they can feel left out. And it's important to see what the church did in this moment. They paid attention to it, and they decided we need to do something. Because we don't just want to be a whole bunch of people in a room on Sunday. But this vision found in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 of the people of God worshiping together, studying together, serving together, learning from one another, supporting one another financially, reaching out to their community, helping meet needs in the city. That vision, we must hold on to it, even though at times it's challenging and it means that we have to deal with some of the issues that we deal with as our church continues to grow. 
They're good problems to have, but they are problems. That's why we're doing this Sunday Night Connect event. We're not just doing it because we just need to have something else in the calendar. We're hoping to create a space where you can meet some new people and you can get some practical teaching on the things that you need help with as you think about living out your faith. Now, my favorite part of chapter 6 is probably found in verse 5. It's a theme that goes all the way back to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on everybody and fills everybody. It said this, this proposal of how they're going to figure out this problem with widows being left out at the distribution of food, this proposal pleased the whole group. And maybe your translation says, pleased the multitude. The whole church became part of the solution. The Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking Jews, men, women, everyone became part of the solution as they faced these challenges together. Some might argue this is the last time the church agreed everybody on anything, and they're probably right. But this moment captures so powerfully what it means to be the church. The whole church engaged in ministry together. People using their gifts, filled with the Holy Spirit, finding their place to serve, to be involved, and to do the thing that God is calling the church to be doing in that time. Everybody leaning in and saying, what is it that we must do? That's why from this stage you'll hear us at times, as we've done in the last few weeks and months, tell you about we've got a homeless person at this service, we've got someone at this service, we need a special offering to help with the bus Heads up, we're coming to let you know about our Christmas ministries in the next few weeks and our exciting plans to work together to meet the needs of those less fortunate in our community. We work together on all of these things led by the Holy Spirit. Now, I started talking about the fact that the tension that the church is living with is that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but we're still broken and sinful. And sometimes that means we make all kinds of messes And it means we make things more complicated than they need to. And it means at times that in the name of the church, we've done some difficult things and hurtful things to people. And we're going to continue to have to wrestle with that as the church because we're all still broken and sinful people. And it's really easy to just be critical of the church and to pull back. Even Jesus was critical of the worship system of his day. He criticized the, the, the religious leaders. He turned over temple or tables in the, in the outer market. And, uh, but he still also went to worship and worshiped with his people, and they attended Passover celebrations together. And so when challenges come, the goal of the church, the job of the church is to lean in fully into the problem and say, how together will we figure this out? To lean into the problem together and say, God, how are you calling us to sort this problem out and to move forward together? As opposed to saying, I'm just going to pull back, oh, I knew the church was, I knew it, I knew it. The church is filled with broken and sinful people empowered by the Holy Spirit trying to live out the mission of God. And there will be times when we do that well and times when we won't. Whether we created the problem or not, we're all called to be a part of the solution. And this is the spirit of the church that we see through the book of Acts. Wrestling together. God, how are you calling us to be on mission together? Now, let's look at the very last verse um, here of chapters of this section in chapter 6. In fact, I want us to, can we read this together? Can I get you to participate for a second? 
Uh, Let's read this together. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So you've got this people filled with the Holy Spirit who are also still broken and sinful, trying to work this out together. There's been real issues in the church that we've looked at here this morning. How is it that the church could even go forward? Well, it's the power of the Word of God. Our hope as a church is not on our perfection or our ability to have all the answers. Our hope is in God's power working in us and through us. That's all we have to hope for. Our hope is that when God moves in our midst and he speaks, his word will go out from his mouth and it will not return empty. And God will continue to call people to himself and invite imperfect broken people to be part of an imperfect and broken church community filled with the Holy Spirit working together to be the church today. Our hope is not in us. It's in what God can do through us. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by the fact that you would choose to use us at all. And yet we accept this mantle that you've given us as your people, as the church. And Lord, each of us are aware of our own broken and sinful natures. And we're aware of the ways in which that nature continues to be a problem as we think about representing you well in the world today. And yet you call us. And so today, first and foremost, we confess to you that we are sinful. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to continue to do the redeeming work that needs to be done in each of our lives. Lord, may we be humble and submit ourselves to your transforming work in each and every one of us. And Lord, today, may we choose to lean in. Lean into the challenges, lean into the obstacles, so that we together as the church might embrace the season of opportunity that is before us. A season where your word will continue to go out and do what only your word can do, changing lives and drawing people to yourself. Lord, may it be so, we pray.